This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. Today, after playing a pretty deadly game of of tug-of-war between the early spring and mid-summer of 1069, William's patience is about to be tested. Not exactly something I would recommend. Today's episode, episode 85, is entitled The Last Straw. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Born in the year 1030, just three years younger than his duke, Roger of Montgomery would become one of William's closest friends and confidants. He would hold a privileged place in Duke William's court from the days of a young William the Bastard jumping out of windows to escape assassination in the middle of the night, all the way to accompanying him on the battlefield against the French king at Valesdun. Roger of Montgomery would do his part to support and prop up his duke in the toughest of times. Coming from a very prominent family who owned large swathes of land in central Normandy, his father, also named Roger of Montgomery, served the Norman ducal court honorably for quite some time. In fact, the junior Roger was most likely the same Roger who's listed as great-grandnephew of Duke Richard I of Normandy himself. Not a bad footing to start life, you have to admit. Being such a close confidant and apparently kinsman to William, it's odd that Roger Montgomery didn't accompany William on his cross-channel trip in late 1066. He'd spent the better part of his life, for all intents and purposes, on horseback, riding alongside, sharing meals, and strategizing with Duke William. Why would he not join his friend in Liege on the biggest expedition of both of their lives? They fought the Britons together. They defeated one Geoffrey the Hammer Martel of Anjou together. They humiliated the King of France together several times. But when William decides to invade and capture a royal crown in a neighboring kingdom, Roger just, what, stays at home? Well, there's a good reason. And that reason is because William would have no one else become Matilda's top advisor while he was away. Matilda ruled fairly, and she was very able, and she ruled justly by all accounts. But Roger of Montgomery, Jr., just to be clear, most likely played a solid part in Normandy's peace during William's conquest of England. And Roger would be rewarded handsomely for his service and his loyalty all these years. You can be sure of that. And it would be his reward that would set off another round of uprisings in Western England, a region that had already experienced a frightening amount of devastation and revolt already. See, Remember, it's the summer of 1069 now. William would gift Roger of Montgomery some land out in Shropshire. Like, a lot of land. Specifically, Roger named Shrewsbury the city where he wanted to build his castle. As we've mentioned on the podcast before, building castles weren't just as simple as gathering some stones and piling them all up together. They required a massive amount of stone and wood, Not to mention all of that stuff that goes into the castle. Where do you think the Normans got all this stuff to build all of these castles across the kingdom? 
Seems awfully convenient to build those castles in or near an already existing city, doesn't it? These Norman nobles stripped their neighboring cities, towns, and villages of whatever they needed for their projects, leaving the people to suffer further from being unlawfully fleeced. So, when Roger of Montgomery moved into Shrewsbury, there were some locals who didn't take too kindly to such treatment and overreach. And in walks, um, I mean, from the woods emerges England's favorite wild man. That's right, Edric the Wild and his band of Mary Silvatici. Peter Rex writes in his book, The English Resistance, quote, This time, Edric attacked and seized the town of Shrewsbury, but was unable to take the castle. This is a clear indication of the vital role played by these strong points in maintaining Norman rule. Leaving the castle untaken in their rear, and so bypassing the Norman garrison, the rebels moved on to Stafford and were again resisted by the castlemen there. Further attacks were launched in Cheshire and to the east of Stafford. End quote. Now Rex refers to these hit-and-run tact- tactics of Edric as Fabian tactics. Now, I'm one for context, so here you go. Fabian tactics, it's a military strategy named after the 3rd century BC Roman consul and general, Quintus Fabius Maximus, who held off the great Carthaginian general Hannibal in the Second Punic War about 1,300 years before the Norman conquest of England. See, Fabian, as he's come to be called, obviously, upon invading North Africa, knew that he couldn't hit Carthage itself, not directly. It was too powerful. It was too fortified. So in order to defeat the great Carthage, Fabian ordered that he would order the hit on every village, town, and field that fed into Carthage. By creating a slow bleed, Fabian was able to allow the process of Carthage's power and resources to simply, well, bleed out. Since then, Fabian tactics have been used by England's Black Prince during the Hundred Years' War, Sam Houston in the lead-up to the infamous Last Stand at the Alamo, Napoleon as he pushed into Russia, and even George Washington himself, sometimes referred to as the American Fabian. While Edric the Wild may not have read about this general in the Roman Republic, but the tactics can be self-evidently successful in the face of what the English were seeing pop up all around them. These sorts of tactics, these Fabian tactics, along with the guerrilla tactics used by the Silatici, were why we found William out west during August of 1069. During a lull in the fighting, William received a messenger while he was hunting in the forest of Dean. The contents of this message were not only important enough for William to stop hunting altogether, but also to order his entire force, save a small number to garrison the area from Roger at Montgomery's new castle, to strike camp, pack up, and move out. We're not wasting time here, folks. Whatever it was, William was spooked enough to abandon his actions against the troublesome English guerrillas of the West Country, led by Edric the Wild. The contents of that message aren't exactly a mystery. Just by following where William went next, along with some of the reports of the area he was headed to, tells us all we need to know. See, England? (laughs) England was being invaded. No, I don't mean by the Normans. England was being invaded 
by a rather hefty fleet, and I mean hefty, of Danish Vikings. That's it. It finally happened. King Swain II Estrasen of Denmark made good on his threats to claim the throne, just when William was gaining, I don't know, some sort of foothold. Now, due to the history of the kingdom and the reputation of those fierce Danes, William was sure the invaders would put up a fight and consume the vast stores of Norman manpower and coin, if not outright push the Normans out of the kingdom forever. No one's really sure if there was a wider conspiracy here, so I don't want to, I don't want to insinuate anything too strongly, but you know, in terms of whether Edric and Edgar Etheling were in contact or or even Edric the Wild and King Swain of Denmark, whether they were in contact with each other, no one really knows. So I, again, I don't want to insinuate too too firmly here, but the timing of it all, it just seems a bit, well, either coincidental or serendipitous. I'm not really sure. The timing comes down to this. William was busy with Edric the Wild out west at the exact moment the Danes raided some English settlements and towns along the North Sea coast. To be fair, this is the age-old Viking pregame for larger conquests, so this isn't quite out of the ordinary, even if they were coming over to save the English. They were still going to start off by raiding to kind of warm up their swords and axes a little bit. And by the time William was informed of this development and started to move eastward, These same Danes sailed into the mouth of the Humber. As William approached their location, these Danes had already made contact with some English rebels, reportedly led by Edgar Etheling himself, and then they moved north to York. Now, before we continue, there's one catch to this unification under their chosen king, Edgar Etheling. See, an archbishop is needed to crown the king, and Yorkshire had but one archbishop. That's right, Eldred, the man who sided with King William I. Though the possibility was there for Eldred to turn his back on William, as he once turned his back on Edgar, no one quite forgot that one, William was fairly confident his archbishop wouldn't. Lucky for him, Archbishop Eldred initially refused to crown Edgar Etheling. Not a huge deal in the short term, but it certainly would have looked far better if Northumbria had an actual king crowned under their banners. Eldred had his chance to change the fortunes and fates of those northerners in early September 1069. However, as the Danes landed at the mouth of the Humber and set up camp and opened negotiations with the English leaders, something that may have convinced the archbishop to crown young Edgar and entirely alter the course of events going forward, well, on September 11th, Archbishop Eldred of York, the man with the fate of the kingdom in his hands, he died, as Rex describes, quote-unquote, worn out and distressed. Fast forward a mere eight days. This takes us up to September 19th, 1069, a day that could be identified, could be, as the kickoff for one of the worst atrocities in English history, even world history. I think there's a case to be made for that as well. See, word reached York within a couple days of the approach of this joint Anglo-Danish force. Now, at the time, York was garrisoned by several hundred 
Norman Knights and Mercenaries, led by Richard Fitzrichard. William's own appointee for Sheriff of Yorkshire, William Mallet, was also present inside the city. Now, Richard Fitzrichard looked around his citadel inside the city's walls and most definitely intimidated by the Danish presence, saw that many houses and buildings were uncomfortably close to his defensive walls. Afraid of the invaders using these structures to climb over the walls, Richard Fitzrichard ordered that all structures around the inner walls of the city were to be set on fire to remove any chance of them being scaled and used against him. See, the problem with that is, in, in a rather large city of, you know, compact wooden structures, all side by side, the fire soon spread beyond just those buildings, and before the residents of York knew what had happened, the city itself went up like a torch. Norman ruled York had been absolutely gutted by Norman rule. And as those Englishmen and Danish Vikings approached the city, they could see smoke from miles away. As these men marched within sight, they saw this grand city, this, this capital of the north, in flames, black smoke rising higher and higher in the sky. It must have made these Englishmen angrier than they'd been so far. I mean, we can safely assume that these mostly could have been Yorkshiremen, if not residents of York themselves. Northerners wouldn't do this to themselves, would they? Well, before they knew it, a large contingency of Normans came riding out of the city at full speed, led by Richard Fitzrichard himself. Out for a little glory, it seems like. Either that, or the man was desperate. However, Richard's forces were absolutely decimated. Hundreds of the Norman attackers were massacred right there, right outside of the walls of York. Now, inside the city, we can piece together that William Mallet, again, the sheriff of Yorkshire, now took charge and holed himself up in the castle. He quickly sent word to King William that he was confident that he would hold out against the Danes for months. As Rex says, quote-unquote, he was never more wrong. Now, word of William's approach must have driven the Anglo-Danish army to move on, or to move on to York itself. Now, they easily gained access to the city, only to find it in worse shape than their imaginations could have allowed them to picture. The city was devastated, with barely a structure left standing. York was ruined. As harsh as it sounds, York was now rendered worthless to the Danes and the English rebels. So, they pushed on to William Mallet's stronghold quickly. In the ensuing skirmish, more Normans were massacred, but William Mallet was able to escape and report back to his king within days. The problem was, William Mallet's family weren't so lucky. His wife and sons were kept hostage by the Danish, but they wouldn't have to wait long for their release. As William brought York into view, William Mallet, was greeted by his family, but the city was now devoid of any rebel, or any invading armies for that matter. It turns out, with York, again, rendered worthless, the English and the Danes moved northward away from the city. As far as they were concerned, King William could have their scraps. The next important center of trade and culture was 90 miles north in the city of Durham. And remember, though it's unclear as to what specific capacity 
Edgar Etheling played a role at York, and this cannot be overlooked either. As I said before, as far as the Northerners felt, there was still a chance that they could, at the very least, reinstall the legendary line of Alfred back on the throne. They'd prefer that over a foreign pony boy any day, and they weren't even exactly happy with that. And if Edgar's first foothold on reclaiming the throne came with securing Yorkshire, then it would be a pretty fair trade. The problem was the Danes. You may be thinking, wait, what? What do you mean, the Danes? Weren't they there to kick the Normans out? I mean, if not Edgar Etheling, then King Swain II Esterson would be a far better choice of ruler than, than Duke William of Normandy, right? Yes, yes, good points all around there, really. But what the English realized the moment they first met the Danes on the banks of the Humber before York was this Danish fleet was missing one key component to their inflated hopes for regime change. The thing missing, the thing they'd hoped for all along, was King Swain himself. Yeah, instead of the Danish king coming, coming himself, he just sent his brother, Asbjorn, to lead the large Danish fleet. Well, the English were connected emotionally to having the one man who had held off the great Harold Hardrada for, what, two decades? The English wanted, no, no, they yearned for King Swain II to relieve them of their Norman woes. But see, although the absence of King Swain II was a gigantic blow to the English, after York, the Danes began to show signs of an army not terribly interested in regime change. In fact, the Danes were making it pretty clear that they were just after one thing. Treasure. The English realized that this whole Danish arrival was a mere charade to take advantage of a discombobulated and chaotic Norman-ruled England, not to liberate these oppressed people and either install their own king or install Edgar Etheling. It just wasn't a part of their plans, apparently. And with how quickly the Danes pushed out of York, it all started to come together for the English. With the Danes on their way out, the English were forced to follow suit, albeit pretty darn begrudgingly. Lived to fight another day, I suppose. Now Rex writes, quote, Despite the success of the attack on the castles of York, the victory proved to be Pyrrhic, since it left the city a burnt-out shell, a wasteland. The rebels were unable to use the city as a stronghold from which to defy King William, and equally unable or unwilling to meet his mailed horsemen in the field. End quote. Well, okay. A burnt-out and gutted fortress. I suppose there's that, too. So, the Danes and the English are hightailing it out of York, heading northward, just as it seems William approaches the moonscape, to use Kurt Vonnegut's words, that was York. There's some acclaim that the English and the Danes were able to hold off King William for a handful of weeks, which is remarkable, actually. But this also calls into question why they hadn't chanced it at York. The reality, however, is not so glorious for the rebels. See, the reality is they destroyed a bridge in their retreat northward, which forced William to seek a long way around. The long way around is what cost them about three whole weeks. So no, unfortunately, to say that the Anglo-Danish forces held off the mighty King William the Conqueror for several weeks is 
Eh, I mean, it's true, but it's just misleading. But according to one northern chronicler, the English had some divine help, apparently. Now, Rex relays a rather peculiar story here, per Simeon of Durham, of what happened in the wake of King William marching into York. Rex explains, quote, A punitive expedition northwards by Flemings, led by Gilbert de Ghent, and sent against Durham, failed. A black fog enveloped the king's men, frustrating their attack. He attributed this to the miraculous intervention of St. Cuthbert, whose relics lay at Durham. William now left his faithful lieutenant, William Fitzosborne, to finish mopping up at York. The English are said to have made one further attack on both castles, which was a failure as they were counterattacked by William Fitzosborne himself. End quote. Now, these northerners were not ones to give up easily. I think we've proven that over and over. Really, the English as a whole at this point. Now, did you catch one tiny detail there? When Rex wrote, William now left his faithful Lieutenant William Fitzosborne to finish mopping up at York. So, where did William go, though? The King William. Where did he go? He's right in the midst of pushing into uncharted territories for just about any king of England in centuries. And what, he just leaves? What on earth could be more pressing than shutting down Northumbrian aggression along with Danish help right then and there? Well, it seems as William rode south toward Winchester and William Fitzosborne fighting a bit more in and around York through the rest of September, well, the rest of England would hear word of not only the exploits of their countrymen in York, but also of the arrival of the Danish fleet. This seemed to act as the leavening agent needed for England's rebellious intentions, which, as we said on the last episode, which had gone a bit flat as of late. Even when word of the English and Danish warriors scattering at William's arrival and of their minor defeats to William Fitzosborne shortly afterward, see, that didn't seem to lessen their optimism in late 1069, specifically late September. Even, word, even when word of their retreat across the mountainous borders, some of them into Scotland, see, they knew that Edgar Etheling was still there under the protection of King Malcolm III. Hope was far from dead. And speaking of being far from dead, rebels around the kingdom who have fallen silent over the preceding month or two all of a sudden erupted in a frenzy of activity all aimed at unsettling the Norman balance of power, and they hoped unseating King William himself. Now, as for King William specifically, he began getting a steady stream of reports of nearly every corner of his kingdom blowing up. It must have seemed as if the world around him was just collapsing, with so much happening all at once. What was he to do? Well, before he knew it, William was ripped from one side of the kingdom to the other, from the western marches of Wales to Yorkshire, from Devon to East Anglia to Dover, William was putting some serious mileage in over the course of September to October of 1069. During this, for lack of a better term here, atomic bomb of activity after the brief taking of York by the English, we begin to see names of thanes and other noblemen who would play larger and larger parts in the coming events names like seward barn 
a significant and wealthy thane in, East, in the East Midlands, Edric the Steersman, Elfwold of St. Bennet's at home, even an at-the-time unknown character named Harroward. For those who already know already, yeah, that Harroward. For everyone else, <laughs> stay tuned. It's a good one. Now, there was another man who became famous for more reasons than just the position he held under William's reign. That is to say, this guy was more than just another William appointee in the records. Waltheoff, second son of Earl Seward of Northumbria. Remember that guy, that powerhouse? And Elflid, granddaughter of Earl Uhtred the Bold of Northumbria. We're talking some serious stock here. See, Waltheoff having come from solid northern stock, was, as of, as of 1069, William's choice for Earl of Northamptonshire and Huntingdonshire, a role he accepted from King Edward back in 1065. And after giving his loyalty, and of course a hefty sum, no doubt, to William after Hastings, he was able to keep the title, this Waltheoff. But in 1068, Earl Waltheoff began to get involved in covert subversion of William's rule and ended up devoting himself to the cause fully, it seems. In fact, earlier in September 1069, Waltheoff was a part of the English contingency who met with the arriving Danes near the mouth of the Humber. Waltheoff would participate, actually, in the attack on York itself, and a pretty solid stance taken against the king. In fact, Orderic Vitalis would write of Waltheoff that in the attack on York around September 20th, quote-unquote, he alone killed many Normans in the Battle of York, cutting off their heads one by one as they escaped through the gate. Waltheoff was now publicly known for his outright rebellion against King William. This was not a good look for Waltheoff, as he without question was stripped of his lands and titles and wealth. But it was also a pretty terrible look for King William, too, as Waltheoff was yet another English nobleman who revolted against his rule. York was a complete disaster for William, despite in the end, having kept the city. As Rex states, York, quote-unquote, would be the Normans' worst defeat in England. Now, with the Norman catastrophe in York that September, there was a clear shift in at least the Northumbrian view of things. Rex says, quote, the intention of the rebels was now to seek revenge on the Normans, end quote. Fighting for independence and fighting for revenge are very different kinds of fighting. William knew this difference. He knew it very, very well. And William most likely recognized it at the time. But William was also in an unprecedentedly difficult predicament, shockingly given his long history of a life in the saddle. See, crisscrossing his kingdom, he would have to balance more than just the military incursions that, uh, that sought to upend his rule and even take his very life but he still had a kingdom to run. While his kingdom exploded around him, he essentially ran things from the back of his horse. There in late summer and early fall of 1069, he was just as much the hunter as he was the hunted. 
These were difficult, difficult days for the King of England. And on the next episode, we pick it up with one of the worst winters in English history. And we're not just talking about the weather. I can't wait to tell you about it.